Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the presenters for Dragon Bites and one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. This week it's time to get back to some studying, so if you've got your exams coming up or you just want a bit of a refresher on cardiology, this is an episode for you. We've been lucky enough to be joined again by Professor Orhan Uzun, Fetal Cardiology Consultant at the University Hospital of Wales, and this week he's going to be talking to us about aortic stenosis. This is the first part in a two to three part series about the topic. Anyway, let's get started. Thank you for joining us again, Professor Uzun. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be back. Uh, it's, it's genuinely a pleasure to have you back with us. You've done so much for us already. Um, so I think the plan for today was to discuss um, aortic stenosis. Is that right? Correct. We will be discussing aortic stenosis types and uh, clinical presentation, examination findings, and treatment very concisely and uh, will make it enjoyable rather than mumbling on. <laughs> I, I, I feel that you've always made it enjoyable. I'm trying, but our <laughs> listeners will um, be the better judge than us. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, so yeah, should we get started? Can we, um, I, know, I know it's a very basic question, but I'm sure it's always a nice place to get started. Um, what exactly is aortic stenosis? What, what are we referring to when we say that? Uh, aortic stenosis refers to obstruction to the cardiac outflow on the left side of the heart. It may occur either below the valve, at the valve level, or above the valve. And then further up, the narrowing may occur in the aortic arch, which is outside the scope of today's discussion. We will leave out coarctation to another day because it is important enough to talk about as a separate entity. If you may agree, what do you think? Oh, I completely agree. I think that's a pretty big topic. Um, and I think we'll have enough to cover just with aortic stenosis alone. Exactly. Because like on the right side, aortic stenosis also occur in three forms, as I said. Subvalvar aortic stenosis occurs in about 10 to 20 percent of children with left-sided outflow tract obstruction. Valva aortic stenosis would occur in 60 to 70 percent of um, children with LV outflow tract obstruction. And the supravalva aortic stenosis is least common. It would be seen in between 5 and 10 percent of children presenting with left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Our main focus will be on the valva component, but we will also touch uh, a little bit on the findings of subvalva and supravalva lesions too. So the left-sided obstructions are as common as the right-sided, slightly less than the right-sided obstructions, but still um, common entities seen in children after left to right shunts like VSD, ASD, PDA. And second common one is right-sided obstruction. And third common one is the left-sided obstructions. Male to female ratio is interesting. As opposed to pulmonary stenosis, we have more males affected in valva aortic stenosis, almost four to one ratio. And just as a quick reminder to the listeners, 
with pulmonary stenosis, there was hardly any difference between males and females. Is that correct? Well remembered. So very little difference in right-sided obstructions. However, there is one exception. In supravalvaiotic stenosis, we do tend to see more females compared to males. There is perhaps something to remember. As far as the valvaiotic stenosis is confirmed, it is in fact most common congenital cardiac abnormality in seemingly normal population as a result of bicuspid aortic valve. This is a special type of aortic valve stenosis where instead of having three leaflets in the aortic valve, we do have fusion of most commonly left and right coronary cusps and the non-coronary cusp is separated from the other two and gives you bicuspid aortic valve appearance. That is the most common congenital cardiac abnormality seen in population. So valve component may occur as bicuspid aortic valve and stenosis, or you may have all three leaflets present, but the leaflets, like in right-sided obstructions, may be dysplastic, thickened, calcified. So that's the pathology. Supravalve aortic stenosis is more commonly associated with genetic abnormality, which can also cause right-sided obstruction. Whether you will be able to remember from our previous podcast, where children present with elfin face, cocktail personality. Um, is this Williams syndrome? Well spotted, well remembered. Exactly. So Williams syndrome is responsible most supravalve aortic stenosis in children. Aortic stenosis at valve level hardly associated with genetic pathologies. But supravalve one is a special type and relates to Williams syndrome. Subvalva aortic stenosis can occur either as a result of membrane in the form of fibrous or fibromuscular membrane underneath the aortic valve causing partial obstruction to LV outflow or may take the shape of fibromuscular tunnel-shaped narrowing. That is again not associated with genetic pathologies but one more important aspect with subvalva aortic stenosis may not be evident at all antenatally or postnatally and it is more of a more of an acquired pathology so if someone comes up with subvalva aortic stenosis we shouldn't be surprised when that child had no murmur no sign no finding whatsoever or no echocardiographic abnormality but beyond one year of age all of a sudden child presents with a murmur and little membrane appears underneath the aortic valve so this is quite common appearance. So that's the pathophysiology and classification of aortic stenosis. It's an obstruction to left ventricular outflow at three different levels. And response to that obstruction by the ventricle is to increase muscle thickness. Initially, cavity size remains the same, but as the left ventricle hypertrophies, the cavity size also becomes smaller. And blood pressure, of course, central blood pressure goes up within the left ventricle. Because blood pressure goes up, left ventricle hypertrophies to reduce the wall stress. So reduction in wall stress uh, has to be performed by the hypertrophied left ventricle. If left ventricle didn't hypertrophy, the increased wall stress would result in LV dilatation and failure quicker. So that's the pathophysiology, how the body adapts to it. 
as part of adaptation, LV function becomes supernormal initially. With the passage of time, if the narrowing is not repaired, then hypertrophy cannot continue to progress. It turns into burnt-out cardio myopathy, burnt-out LV hypertrophy, and LV starts dilating. And the valves or narrowings may progress or may stay the same. If it is bicuspid aortic valve without any obvious calcification or thickening or dysplasia, these children would not have any problem in childhood or adults until they hit fifth decade. And in fifth decade and sixth decade, these valves may become calcified and narrowing may settle it. In some other children, bicuspid aortic valves may be also dysplastic and the fusion may be so severe, the functional orifice of the aortic valve may be very small, which lead to mild, moderate, and progressively worsening aortic stenosis. So it depends on the morphology of the aortic valve and the degree of fusion. Valve aortic stenosis can progress either slowly or moderately or quite fast. And the majority of progression would occur in infancy. If the aortic stenosis did not progress to a severe form in the first year of life, the progression slows down and hardly uh, leads to LV, uh, severe LV hypertrophy or LV failure. So does that mean, so if we pass the first year of life and we don't pick up an aortic stenosis from a child that's um, decompensated and perhaps become a bit more unwell, that it might be unlikely that we'll see one during our pe the pediatric part of the um, individual's lifetime and it not, might not get picked up until they're well into their adult years. Correct. So it may remain entirely asymptomatic. Mild aortic stenosis may not come to medical attention. True. Now, pathology goes on like that. And physiologically, these babies look well if the severity of aortic stenosis remains in the mild version and they may come to medical attention during a viral illness or febrile illness and when the murmur is heard in uh, in GP practices or in routine hospital examinations aortic stenosis may be noticed on an echocardiogram but they would hardly present as unwell kids or uh, kids with significant murmur if the narrowing is on the mild. However, if the narrowing is important in those patients, we would see some different findings, some abnormal findings on physical examination when we feel the pulses, when we check blood pressure, when we listen to the heart. So we'll come to that gradually. Uh, physiology of child is not so kind in infancy or during adolescence or during pregnancy. During those periods, progression may be slightly faster compared to other periods of childhood. And again, in adulthood, after fifth decade, progression is quicker than younger ages. When we examine a child with suspected aortic stenosis, we need to start from top to toe, look at the patient's pulsations in the neck. If the aortic stenosis is a is an isolated lesion without any aortic regurgitation. We may not see usual and very famous Musset sign. Do you remember any sign called the Musset sign in aortic 
Vow lesions, Asim? No, that's not ringing a bell with me at all, I'm afraid. In severe aortic regurgitation, head bobbing is quite significant. The Musay was, a, was an artist and he was inflicted by severe aortic regurgitation. So that's something if someone has aortic stenosis and also there is head bobbing, on observation, you may think this is a mixed lesion. Most aortic stenosis have isolated aortic obstruction, but about a quarter of aortic stenosis will have additional regurgitation. We need to remember that. Particularly the bicuspid aortic valve would be more prone to have aortic regurgitation with the passage of time as the person gets older. Or valve aortic stenosis, again, would be more likely to develop aortic regurgitation in the follow-up. Can you think of the reason for that? Think of dilatation of the aortic root, Asim. Well, I suppose if you have a really um, high-pressure jet hitting, hitting the aortic wall on the other side, then you might get dilatation of, of that part of the aorta, which might cause the leaflets to, to then start to separate more, and then you'd get a degree of regurgitation. Does that sound reasonable? Spot on. Absolutely. This is one of the mechanisms and most common mechanism. And the second mechanism is progressive fibrosis and um, dysplasia of the already abnormal valves. So those are the two mechanisms. But first one you um, beautifully explain, it is the most common one. So lesion most commonly isolated, but aortic regurgitation may be added in the follow-up. Before the narrowing, prior to narrowing, blood pressure has to go up to overcome the narrowing. If you cannot generate higher pressure, your cardiac output would be compromised. And particularly if you are exercising, you develop peripheral vasodilatation. You, your muscles are hungry for blood and they extract more oxygen. And vasodilatation leads to lower blood pressure. And what happens in those patients? Cardiac output cannot sustain circulation. And what sort of symptoms these children might develop or adults on exertion as a result of peripheral vasodilatation and low blood pressure during exertion? Well, syncope. Absolutely. So this is the hallmark of valve aortic stenosis or aortic stenosis in patients exercise-related syncope. So this is one of the presentation. How about saturation? Would saturation be abnormal? Well, it's not a cyanotic um, heart lesion, so I suppose um, saturations would be normal. Saturation would be normal if the narrowing is not critical. So if there is forward flow into the upper extremities through the orifice, but it's not enough, we need to keep the duct open and the ductal flow would go mainly to the lower extremities, but also um, reverse flow would go into the brain and also the arms. But the majority of pink blood would go into the upper extremities. So the saturation in upper extremities may, may be one or two measure higher than the lower extremities. So it's called differential cyanosis can be seen in severe critical aortic stenosis. Ah, okay. I've cottoned on now. Yes. Yeah, so, so we've got the oxygenated blood, even though it's a critically stenosed valve, we've got oxygenated blood going through the aorta, not as normal, but there's still a certain degree. So the upper limbs are still 
and the upper extremities are still getting the oxygenated blood. But for the lower extremities, in order to make up for the lack of blood flowing through the aorta, you're getting um, more blood coming through the patent ductus via the pulmonary vasculature. If there is also a complete obstruction, so there is no blood flow whatsoever through the aortic valve, we call that aortic atresia, remember. Atresia describes complete obstruction with no forward flow through the aortic valve. So hence, if there is no exit, pulmonary venous flow has to go somewhere through the foramen ovale to the right side. It gets mixed with venous return and gets pumped into the pulmonary artery and goes into the aorta via the ductus. And in those patients, you develop cyanosis. And cyanosis, this time, is same in upper and lower extremities because there is no forward flow. Aortic stenosis is not a cyanotic lesion. It results in congestive heart failure due to low cardiac output, due to increased pulmonary vascular resistance or pulmonary pressure as a result of LV and diastolic and LA pressure being higher. And the pulmonary circulation becomes stressed and right ventricle, if the foramen ovale is open, receives also left to right shunt from the left atrium and pulmonary circulation increases. And pulmonary circulation congestion might occur and low cardiac output. And these patients usually present with collapse, not with breathlessness as a result of pulmonary congestion, but there is minimal pulmonary congestion in these babies if the aortic stenosis is clear, as well as low cardiac output symptoms. So they usually collapse. Collapse is usually usually due to low cardiac output, but there is also an element of marginally increased right ventricular output and pulmonary congestion. The other presentation may be related to ischemia, subendocardial ischemia. Due to LV hypertrophy and the increased pressure inside the left ventricle, coronary circulation may not be perfect as a result of reduced output. And the first area will be affected inside the heart has to be endocardium. Endocardium is very sensitive and endocardium does not have any blood supply, remember. And it solely gets nutrients and oxygen most of the time from the cavity. And if the intra Ventricular pressure is high and it leads to endocardial ischemia. And those patients may present with what sort of symptoms if there is ischemia? So um, presumably chest pain, perhaps angina-like symptoms? Brilliant, absolutely. This is one of the conditions would give angina to our patients with aortic stenosis. Other ones are coronary artery lesions, uh, arrhythmia, severe arrhythmia and aortic stenosis is one of the common causes for ischemia in children and one of the rare causes, of course, and it is important to recognize that. If a child presents to casualty with chest pain, normal child with no underlying structural heart disease, most patients would not have any cardiac pathology or any other heart-related problem, and it would be a benign chest pain due to musculoskeletal skeletal tenderness. But in children with a murmur, and um, known aortic stenosis, first thing you must think is this due to sub subendocardial ischemia. So when we listen to these children or when we feel femoral pulses or when we feel these patients 
chest after finishing our observations. Any particular abnormality you expect to detect? Let's start with the pulses, femoral pulses, brachial pulses, and the heart rate. Uh, so, so when it comes to the femoral pulses, I've got, I've got this vague recollection from when, I'm re when I was revising aortic stenosis for the clinical exams about slow rising pulses. Wonderful, correct. Slow rising pulse is one of the features of aortic stenosis, correct. If aortic stenosis is, a, is an isolated lesion, if there is aortic regurgitation as well, would you expect anything significant? Say there is severe aortic regurgitation, severe aortic stenosis. Hmm. So I see. So I suppose if you've got aortic regurgitation, there'd probably be a big difference in pulse pressures as well. Would you get a bit of a bounding pulse? Yes. Yes. Bounding pulse, and um, and it would be rapid disappearance of pulse under your fingers. But if it is just slow rising pulse or diminished pulses, but in all four extremities, not just in femorals. So the pulse is reduced in arms as well as in, in the legs. So there is no differential reduction in pulse. So pulses would be diminished. That's one of the most common and easiest finding to detect. About the heart rate, would, would the heart rate go up? Hmm. Well, I suppose that depends on whether the heart's trying to maintain a normal cardiac output. So if you've got a, if the blood pressure's normal, then would the heart rate stay the same? Children can increase their cardiac output by increasing their heart rate. They rely on their heart rate because the heart is small cavity. It cannot extend, it cannot dilate as much as the adults would do. So therefore, they do tend to raise their heart rate a little bit. So patients with aortic stenosis tend to have higher heart rates than their peers. That's one thing um, from my observations then we should perhaps look at differential pulses. So if the pulses are equal, equally reduced in arms as well as in, in the fem femoral areas, uh, we can say that aortic stenosis is most likely here. But if the brachial pulses are diminished but femoral pulses are normal, can occur very rarely if only your subclavian arteries are narrow, if you got some peripheral stenosis or origin stenosis or stenosis at the origin of your subclavian artery, then you may have isolated reduction in your brachial pulses. So it is exceedingly rare to have such problem. You can have diminished pulses in isolation in your femorals, but you cannot have diminished pulses in isolation in your arms unless weird thing happens and subclavian arteries are narrow, which can be seen in some vasculitis, but it is very rare. So what I'm trying to get here, get it here, the pulses would be reduced in upper and lower extremities in aortic stenosis. Then we can move to patient's precordium. How about precordium? On palpation, what, do, what, what sort of activity would you expect on the left side versus right side? So on the left side, you'd probably, would you get um, a, a a sort of palpable left ventricular um, impulse, that's the word. Yes. Left ventricular impulse would be palpable, correct, if the aortic stenosis at least 
moderate is severe and severe intensity. If aortic stenosis is mild or mild to moderate, LV impulse may not be noticeable and we would feel it in the apex. And on palpation, we may also feel another sensation when we put our fingers in the suprasternal notch or in the apex or in the second right or left intercostal space, but mostly in the suprasternal notch, which is thrill. Thrill again tells you that aortic stenosis is severe and the moment you feel thrill and you will program yourself to say, I am going to hear grade four over six murmur here. And the thrill can be also felt over carotid arteries. That would be differentiating point, thrill of pulmonary stenosis. Pulmonary stenosis thrill would be on the second left intercostal space, but sometimes aortic stenosis may give you a thrill in the same space or under the clavicle, but you would not feel that thrill in the suprasternal notch or in the neck. If you feel that thrill in the neck, then it's most likely to be aortic stenosis, not pulmonary stenosis. That would be a differentiating point. So palpation and observation, as well as peripheral pulses, diminished peripheral pulses, steered you towards left-sided obstruction. You moved away from right-sided obstruction, and now you are going to listen to patient's chest. Again, depending on the severity, the murmur, may take three forms. So in mild aortic stenosis, the murmur is typically in aortic stenosis ejection systolic or pan-systolic, Asim? Um, ejection systolic. Exactly. In a murmur audible due to semilunar valve pathology would be ejection systolic. And in mild aortic stenosis, ejection systolic murmur would be a short mid-systolic murmur that would peak early in diastole, early in systole, I do apologize. And second heart sound would split normally because aortic stenosis closes without too much delay. But the murmur would not last long and it would peak early in systole. An aortic second heart sound component would be prominent as a result of hypertension. If the murmur is longer and peaks late in systole, this would tell you that narrowing is moderate. In moderate stenosis, you will also hear an additional sound. So in moderate aortic stenosis, you would still hear ejection systolic murmur, but that would be longer, more symmetric, and it would be still mid-systolic with a late systolic peak. So peak would be later on, but it would be longer. It would extend closer to the second heart sound. How about second heart sound? Would the second heart sound be split or single? Um, would it be single but loud? loud? I am very impressed. Absolutely spot on, Asim. I think you're in the wrong profession. <laughs> Pediatrics. Pediatric cardiology you should have, <laughs> you should have been. Um, let's move on to the additional sound. So would you hear an additional sound in moderate aortic stenosis prior to start of the murmur? Um, I'm not sure. I know that you can get ejection clicks, but would that not be with more severe um, aortic stenosis? Well, ejection systolic murmur can be heard in mild 
as well as moderate aortic stenosis. The ejection systolic murmur would be easier to listen in patients with mild to moderate and the intensity of ejection systolic murmur would be more significant if the aortic valve is dysplastic and the closure occurs abruptly. If the valve doesn't open and completely fused and doesn't have any closure in the beginning of systole rather, then the ejection systolic click may not be prominent. But ejection systolic click can be seen in bicuspid aortic valve without any significant aortic stenosis. In moderate aortic stenosis, ejection systolic murmur would be less than the mild aortic stenosis, but you would be able to appreciate it better if you can put more emphasis on it just before the murmur. If you listen to mild aortic stenosis, ejection systolic click would be separated from the first heart sound widely, but again, because the murmur is quieter, may make you, depending on your ability to concentrate, to notice it or consider it as part of the murmur. So when we listen to patient's heart, auscultation would reveal three types of murmur. Mild, moderate, and severe murmurs. Mild murmurs, moderate murmurs, and severe murmurs would give ejection systolic click, all three of them. If the murmur is due to mild aortic stenosis, it would be short mid-systolic murmur peaking in early systole. And second heart sound, aortic component, would be louder, prominent, but the heart sound, second heart sound, would be still split. If it is moderate, you would still hear ejection click, but first heart sound and ejection click would be closer to each other. So first heart sound may be confused with ejection systolic murmur, so you may miss that. However, the murmur would be louder, it will help you, and it will be longer, still ejection systolic quality, and will peak later in systole, and it would be more symmetrical, diamond-shaped. And the second heart sound would be single, because aortic valve closure would be delayed. And the severe aortic stenosis would still give you an ejection click, and the click would be closer to the first heart sound, and the murmur would be diamond-shaped, still symmetrical, still mid-systolic, but the second heart sound would be paradoxically split. So it would hear splitting in the aortic area, an aortic valve closure would be delayed beyond pulmonary valve closure. And moderate and severe aortic stenosis may be differentiated from each other if your hearing is very good and your ears are well trained. You would hear a fourth heart sound in severe aortic stenosis in diastole, pre-systolic, before the first heart sound, as a result of atrial contraction into the thick ventricle, you would hear dull fourth heart sound. So that fourth heart sound would separate severe aortic stenosis from moderate. The other separation would be paradoxical splitting of the second heart sound. And the third differentiation would be 
that the murmur in tungsten would be louder and longer. It would come very close to the second heart sound and very close to the first heart sound. And of course, thrill. And thrill would separate mild aortic stenosis from moderate to severe. And the thrill, again, would be best palpable in the jugular fossa or suprasternal notch and would be also palpated over the carotids or in the neck and that would separate thrill arising from pulmonary stenosis. So this probably will be enough for you to make the diagnosis aortic stenosis on the basis of child presenting with exercise-induced breathlessness or collapse or in small children collapse, low output scenario, increased LV impulse, reduced pulses in all four extremities, ejection systolic murmur, ejection click, and special presentation of second heart sound and the presence of fourth heart sound. And you made the diagnosis before you consider doing ECG, chest x-ray and echocardiogram. And I just wanted to say thank you to Professor Orhan Uzun for recording that for us. That's the first part in a series. We'll have the rest coming up for you in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.